Generally, the practice of meditation, most people refer to as something that's difficult, which is probably correct because if it was easy, there'd be a lot more wise and enlightened people in the world. But because it's difficult, it's important for us to use wisdom to guide our practice and to develop a skillful attitude towards the practice. And part of that is understanding that, it's, that we shouldn't be discouraged <clears throat> shouldn't be discouraged by our own lack of peace or lack of mindfulness, lack of understanding that we come across as we're practicing. We can use that as food for contemplation and motivation in the practice. If you look at the lives of our teachers, whether it's living teachers you've met or heard about or just reading about the lives of different meditation masters, <coughs> they all went through difficulty in their practice, in the training of their minds. I've never heard or read of any teacher saying it was easy. But some of the qualities that they seem to have in common include this wish to train the mind and to learn from the experience of their own mind. So they have a certain curiosity and willingness to learn even from suffering. It's not like those kind of enlightened teachers must have been enlightened from birth or day one. They've had to go through difficulty because they've got a body and mind just like us. They're human beings with their personality, their personal history, their background, just like us. But out of faith in the Buddha and the Dhamma, the Sangha, they learned to overcome their difficulties through the practice and to keep going. Which is why our teachers praise the quality of perseverance and persistent effort with the practice. It doesn't matter what's coming up as long as you keep practicing. But even our effort is guided by the teaching of what is right effort, samahwayama, something to reflect back on as, as we practice meditation. 
are we putting effort into bringing up skillful qualities of mind, developing them? Are we putting effort into abandoning the unskillful and preventing them from arising further? We're practicing right effort and as long as we keep going, persisting, persevering, then this is the kind of quality and the attitude we need. Whatever comes up, we just have to take that as it comes. Whatever our mind brings up, our reactions, our peculiar habits and personality traits, we all have to deal with that. But that can all be the food for contemplation, for mindfulness and wisdom to arise. As Ajahn Chah reminded us, it's one thing to put effort into sitting and walking meditation, bringing up mindfulness directed to a meditation object, like the breath or Bhutto. It's quite another thing to maintain the mindfulness that you've developed, to preserve it, support it, maintain it. It's even harder. We put all the effort into sitting and walking meditation, but then we go away. So easy for the mind to get distracted again, lose the quality of mindfulness, lose the quality of right effort as we fall back into old habits and distractions. So it's that evenness of effort that was also praised by Lumpur Chah. Standing, walking, sitting, lying down, in all postures. That's often where we see or perceive a difficulty, a sense of effort. But the effort required is really just bringing the mind back to the present moment, the Pachubana Dhamma, and not dwelling on the past, proliferating and on the future learning the skill of maintaining and bringing up mindfulness in the present moment, even if we have to think about the past or plan for the future, but to do it mindfully with the mind in the present moment. That's our aim. One of the teachings Lumpur Chao would bring up with the lay, lay community often is one about how People love to make merit and make good karma, but they don't like to give up bad karma or evil. And where, this is where people fall down in their practice. Because they put a lot of effort into the practice of generosity, of trying to keep precepts or even practicing meditation. But when they finish, they go away. They finish their meditation, they've done their act of dana, and then they don't preserve the skillful qualities in their mind. And they maybe go off and break the precepts or do unskillful things or don't put any further effort into maintaining mindfulness. So they never quite achieve the, the happiness or the insight that they're seeking 
he compared it with the uh, galamang, this old-fashioned enamel bowl we used to use in Thailand when anagarikas to eat our food. Said that people are like a galamang that you turn up upside down out in the open. The rain falls, but the galamang can never fill because it's turned upside down. The rain just hits the bottom of the galamang and rolls off. The galamang always remains empty because it's upside down, can't hold any water. Said our minds are like that. We put effort into being mindful, being generous, being restrained in the sila, but then we don't maintain the effort to abandon greed, anger and delusion. Then we keep undermining the good karma that we're trying to develop. As monks we might not be breaking the precepts but we can easily get distracted by our own states of mind, distracted by activities and things we can get lost in, lose our mindfulness, lose our clear comprehension very easily. So it's this evenness of effort, evenness of practice that Lumpur Chah praised. It doesn't matter what your starting point is. You don't have to be perfect from day one as you come into the Sangha. But perfection comes from trying to develop right effort and consistent, regular effort, just not giving up. And we really have to learn to keep coming back to our own minds in the present moment, bringing up present moment awareness, mindfulness, clear comprehension, right effort, and then wisdom can start to function. Because with mindfulness you can know and see what's going on. You hold your attention, you still the mind long enough that even though thoughts are still arising, emotions, reactions, you can see them with wisdom for what they are, zanicca, dukkha, anatta. Classic pictures of the person standing on the riverbank, they can see the water flowing by but they're not getting involved with it. The mind with mindfulness. It's not a dull, passive state of mind. We're alert to what is skillful to be cultivated, what's unskillful to be abandoned. And mindfulness supports the arising of wisdom. So it's not just a passive, dull state of mind, sitting meditation, not really knowing what's going on. We're aiming to develop mindfulness so we can hold attention long enough to know the mental activity, the way the body, the mind is in the present moment and reflect on it with wisdom. So that takes effort, it's not a dull passivity. It takes effort and we have to apply the teachings that we've learned to our minds, to our state of mind, to our behavior overall, what we're doing, how we're acting through body, speech and mind every day. 
So to make a pun, there's never a dull moment if you're practicing mindfulness. There's always something to do to bring the attention back to the present moment and observe your own body and mind, five candors as they are. And you learn from that. It's this interest to learn that's so important, part of the right attitude towards meditation. So learning from, even from states of dullness, and learning from whatever the hindrances that may be arising or the dukkha that's arising can be learnt from and that's the way we transcend it so we don't have to be shy or afraid of dukkha but take it rather as something to learn from a challenge even if it's dukkha that keeps recurring same old kind of dukkha then we have to take that as a challenge it's a sign of how deep the Upadana, the attachment is, which has to be uprooted. So we have to try all the more harder to bring up mindfulness and investigate that particular Upadana. Chakaryanu Yoga is one of those phrases Lumpur Cha emphasized over and over again in dedication or devotion to wakefulness. It's devotion to bringing up mindfulness, whatever's going on, whatever the posture, the mental state, bringing up mindfulness to see a mental state as a mental state rather than as me, mine, myself, this is the way I am. It's that objective, detached awareness we can apply back to ourselves. And we can do this as human beings. We can become aware of our own state of mind. It's much harder to know someone else's state of mind. You notice when we're new to the practice, we tend to spend a lot of time judging, second-guessing others, thinking we know about others. Sometimes we look in awe or praise of others, thinking they can do the practice better than us, but we don't really know. Sometimes we look down on others, makes us feel better. Maybe we feel we can see their defilements, even though we're missing all our own defilements. But we don't really know other people, and they have to know for themselves. Where we can really know is us, our own mind, the experience we have. You see over time, the longer you're in the robes, how a lot of our perceptions are misperceptions. The way we project onto other people, think about our fellow Sangha members, maybe assume things, some good, some bad, that turn out maybe to be incorrect, or at very least just temporary passing observations that aren't really that important. I remember living in Thailand many, over the years, seeing many occasions where you have a perception about another monk turns out to be wrong. Through time you realize some kind of idea you had about another monk was just wrong. I remember particularly when I was a novice, what Kuhn, there was one monk came to visit who 
everyone thought must be an arahant. He's about only about ten reigns, but very serene, composed manner, very composed when he spoke. The lay people made a big fuss of him. So we kind of added to the aura of enlightenment. Very mindful in the way he used his bowl, his requisites. And in those days we didn't have much, but everything he did was seemed to be very mindful, careful, seemed to be the perfect monk. He could give a Dhamma talk for an hour or two if he needed to. So in every way, from the outside, he seemed very perfect. All the junior monks looked up to him and the lay people liked to offer him things and look after him. He was only visiting temporarily, but they made a big fuss of him. A year later, I found out he'd disrobed and married a woman. Just like that. Suddenly from being an enlightened arahant to just an ordinary, went back to being a farmer with a fam starting a family. Other monks look at you think, never make it. And yet they can stay their whole lives in the robes. There's a few characters at Wapapong who over the years maybe with a butt of jokes or would be teased by Lumpocha, but they're still in the robes today and they'll die in the robes. Monks, everyone thought, will never make it, never last. Didn't have enough mindfulness, enough wisdom, enough skills, couldn't do things very well. But they survived. And if you survive many years in the robes, you'll definitely be wise. You're compared to the majority of people in this world. Where can you find wisdom easily in a group of Buddhist monks? They'll be very wise to the way things are the impermanence of life, the dukkha, and the lack of self in things. <clears throat> Anyone who stayed in the robes for many years will have some insight into that, you can guarantee. And that's really valuable, that kind of wisdom, much more than the sort of personality character traits which you might judge in the beginning, and this person is very mindful, wise, this one's very kind of bumbling or forgetful. Those aren't so important. In the, in the long run, the wisdom is what brings a wholesome state of mind to that person. And you see many of the monks who've been monks many, many years, they've gained something that nobody can take away, won't just disappear. It's something very tangible. It teaches you not to believe your own perceptions too much. Instead of spending all your time thinking about other monks, comparing who's better, worse, who's wise, who's not, who's good vinaya or not, you come back to look at your own practice. Because that's all we can know for sure. And you know others a little bit. Ajahn Chah said, look at others maybe 10% of the time just to get an idea of what's going on. If they're practicing good, in a good way, that's good. Maybe they can be an example. If they're not, well, it's not sure, is it? You can't be sure other people's state of mind. So 90% of the time, you come back and look at yourself. What are you doing? What are you thinking? How are you feeling? Where's your mind? What are you doing with your speech, your actions? 
And that's the place of practice. Someone was saying at lunchtime, woke up this morning, they knew it was one prat, you pose it a day. They woke up at 4 a.m. and they're just lying there thinking, should I get up and meditate and chant, or maybe bed is warm, stay in bed. So they started becoming drowsy again because they hadn't got up. Just at that moment when they're sort of half awake, half asleep, in a very kind of vivid dream of a snake dropping out of the roof onto their, onto them. So it couldn't, because they're in a half awake, half dreamy state, they couldn't be sure whether it's real or not. So they jumped up with a jump, thinking a snake was on them. Of course, it was just a dream, just a vision. They said after that, they couldn't sleep. So it did the job. After that, they chanted and meditated and were very awake through till dawn. You notice our mind, it's not sure, is it? You know, sometimes when you're dull on your own in your kuti in the morning, it's so easy just to get warm with the blankets or whatever and then just fall asleep. And yet if something happens, we can be so awake. If a snake comes, you really wake up. If a tree crashes next to your kuti, you wake up. Well, we've got to learn to wake up without these more extreme situations. We've got to do it for ourselves, through our effort, right effort. Bring up mindfulness, let go of dullness, sleepiness. So well, you, ask, you look at the teachers, they've used many different Methods, yeah, chanting, yeah, patimokkha is a great, learning the patimokkha is a great way to deal with hindrances, sleepiness, distraction, worry about the future, dullness. You learn the patimokkha, learn another rule, put the effort into that and you can really see where your mind is if you're learning a rule. Chanting. Walking meditation. In the cold weather, you know, we have these halls. You can walk in a hall if it's too cold or wet outside. Ajahn Chah said, if you've got a kuti, you can walk in a kuti even four or five paces from one wall to another if you're really devoted to wakefulness. If you've been sitting in the morning and you can't sleep, uh, you can't stay awake, well, get up and walk even in your kuti if it's raining outside. You walk from one corner to another slowly mindfully, you won't fall asleep and it's another form of meditation. If you're disposed to negativity towards yourself or situations or other people, well, use that as a stimulus for mindfulness of metta, karuna, in the Brahma Viharas. Every time you catch yourself falling into a negative thought, angry thought, irritation with someone else, determined to bring up kindness, compassion, forgiveness, letting go. So every time, if you're one who gets angry easily, then you'll get enlightened quicker. As you bring up metta and karuna to calm the mind from the anger, all the time, 
If you're getting angry all the time, or you'll be bringing up a lot of mindfulness and a lot of metta, your mind will attain samadhi all the quicker. You have to use the hindrances, cravings and attachments that come up in the mind as an object of mindfulness to spur us on in our effort and they can actually, we turn them around into something good. Sometimes we're so caught up in our moods you know, we, use, we find all kind of excuses for our moods. So if we are angry type, as soon as we get one or two vasas, we'll be looking down at the junior monk next to us or the novice or the anagarika or layman and say, oh, he's wrong, he does this wrong, that wrong. Let our negativity go wild. Let's take a step back and look at the big picture. Maybe we don't know everything yet if we're very junior. Maybe turn it around. If you see somebody making a mistake somebody who's struggling or turn, instead of being angry or Ill, having ill will see if you can find a way to practice kindness tolerance towards them it's not something that kind of stops when you gain a few reins you become five reins you become a majima you can stop having metta for noakas <laughs> become a terror don't have to have metta for anyone else now you're a terror it doesn't work like that, does it, with the mind. If there's ill will arising, then that's where you have to practice. I always remember when I was a young monk staying with Ajahn Pir, Kalamluka. He was the abbot running the monastery. We always had great compassion and kindness for the monks with him. There's only a few of us who were junior, much more junior than him. One day I forgot my sangati, left it in the hall where we'd had the evening meeting and I knew it was there and I was planning to go back. I was just walking meditation back at my kuti but he didn't know that and he was going back to his kuti so he bought me my sangati and I really, it really surprised me, I thought, oh this terror, he's brought me my sangati. Very small act of kindness but very good lesson that you can remember for years and years. Kindness, you can be a senior monk, you can be kind to a junior monk. Junior monk, you can be kind to a senior monk or another junior monk. And people remember that. We have to be the ones who make the effort to go against our negative tendencies. And this is right effort. If you've got ill will, we'll try and bring up some kindness, compassion, Teach yourself. Do a favor for someone rather than just think angry thoughts towards them. This is what the practice is all about. Monastic practice every day, there's opportunities to do good for others in small ways or bigger ways. Remember once, as soon as I'd learned to sew a sangati in the monasteries, sangati sewers are always few and far between. So what Nana chat? As soon as I learned, Jampasano started asking me to sew, help new monks or potential new monks sew sangatis, and often they just couldn't sew, so I ended up having to sew for them. 
remember seeing you get if it's a monk you you're impressed with or like and you really want to sew for them help them or someone you feel sorry for who's had a hard time you really want to sew for them and then there's other ones you don't like you don't want to sew for them so i used to teach myself just sew for them anyway help them because everybody has the potential for enlightenment in them everybody has good qualities if they didn't have any good qualities they wouldn't be in a monastery so you try and focus on that put aside your own preferences and prejudices you sew a robe for someone whether you like them or not you can sew a robe and sewing a robe takes time so it's like one of those practices you know persistent effort persevering with your own state of mind if you don't like someone but you're helping them sew, teaching them or actually sewing for them then you you keep letting go of any ill will or negativity till it's gone very simple task but it can be completely purifying of the mind you can transcend your own anger by just sewing a robe for someone this is what we call right effort using the practice the simple activities of daily life the mindfulness of sitting and walking the chariawata doing the chores helping out this is where you can let go of defilements this is where you can have moments of insight see a mind state of dullness or greed or anger and see as an each dukkha anatta and let go of it when you're taking food and you think about the other members of the sangha if you're higher up the line well make sure you know how many people are staying in the monastery behind you in the line monks novices and agarika laymen think of them it's so easy just to think oh now I'm at the end of the line I'm going to take exactly what I want do what I want well think of the ones behind and you can let go a little bit of your greed this is how our teachers have practiced you read their biographies listen to their talks they've taken ordinary situations but used them to as a way to let go of the greed anger delusion rather than giving in and we give in we like the man on the bank of the river we don't just stay on the bank we get into the water and flow along with it it's when you give in when you lose your right effort give in to laziness selfishness anger ill will worries anxiety about the future and what might happen there's plenty of opportunity to give in to kilesa and just follow along with it we keep asking yourself where does it bring you where do you end up when you follow the river of kilesa you end up drowning more unhappy and more miserable when you make the effort to go against the flow bring out mindfulness and wisdom even though it takes effort it's not easy it brings you to a higher state of mind which is what we're all aiming for you you literally your state of mind goes higher is more superior it improves even 
if you've got hundreds of negative mental states coming up, you make the effort to go against them. You're rising, bringing your mind to a higher place. It brings its karmic result. You get more detachment, dispassion, more peace, more, contem uh, more contentment, more satisfaction in yourself. Doesn't matter whether you still have defilements or not, you're peaceful or not, but that effort brings you to a sense of contentment. Ultimately, this is what keeps us in the robes, keeps us practicing, keeps us developing the practice. Sense of contentment, and the willingness and the effort to go against the stream of greed, anger, delusion and bring up the opposite, contentment, kindness, compassion, mindfulness and wisdom. So tonight is the positive, we'll have some chanting and then patimokha and tonight we can put effort into our practice. So I'll leave you with these reflections.